If you would, please open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is in your Old Testament. We've been in the book of Psalms for a good while now. If you open up to the book of Psalms and take a right about a dozen books, I believe you'll find the book of Jonah. It's only a few pages long. Your index may be a help to you. Today begins a two-part series, Sovereign Compassion, the story of Jonah and the great God. This is an intermission from our series through the book of Psalms. It'll be two parts. Today we're going to go through chapters 1 and 2, and then in two weeks we're going to go through chapters 3 and 4 together. This morning's sermon is from Jonah 1 and 2, and it's titled, Jonah, Some Sailors, and a Fish. I'll start by reading the first three verses of the first chapter of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of of the Lord. Two weeks ago in Denver, a man entered a theater for the midnight showing of the new Batman film. You'd know this. And he filled the room with smoke and gas, and he opened fire, and 12 were killed, including a six-year-old little girl. These were parents. These were sons and daughters. These were grandsons and granddaughters, every one of them an image bearer of God. One of the great comforts of Christianity is that God will make all things right. He is a just God, and this will not get by him. The shooter will not suffer enough in this life for all that he's done. But this is precisely why there is a hell, and there is always justice with God. But what if I told you that God would happily withhold judgment from this man? Should he acknowledge his sin? And cry out to God for mercy. That God wants him to repent because God would delight to forgive him. What if tomorrow afternoon you got a phone call with news that an intoxicated driver, a repeat offender, hit the car that your spouse was driving and that your spouse and your children were killed? Or your fiancé or your parents that your loved ones were killed? What if I told you that while God, uh, while this driver should meet and be accountable to every point of the law and that God would hold him or her accountable for their negligence, that God also would happily forgive that person if they would confess their sin and cry out to him for mercy? Well, this week, whenever I mentioned to anyone that we were going through the book of Jonah, I was met with four words almost in every case. Jonah and the fish. And this was their way of letting me know they knew what I was talking about, and rightly so. Uh, You mean Jonah and the fish? Yeah, the book of Jonah. That makes sense. In the story, Jonah is swallowed alive by a giant fish. We haven't even made it there yet in reading, but you know that it's coming. Jonah and the fish, the fish rather, is the trademark for Jonah and for this book, and it's not likely ever going to go away. All kinds of people are identified by the crazy things that happen to them. For example, Nancy Kerrigan, do you remember that name? She won a silver medal. You didn't remember that, and neither did I. What you remembered was Tanya Harding, her her, uh, nemesis. Uh, She, Harding and her boyfriend, hired a hitman to break Kerrigan's legs in the hallway at a competition leading up to the Olympics back in the mid-90s. seems that the weirder it is, the more it sticks. But I think if you ask many of us, what is the book of Jonah about, we'd say, well, the book of Jonah is about Jonah and the fish. Well, I'm excited about these two messages because of how I've gotten acquainted with this book, much better than I have been acquainted with this book, and how it's broadened my vision of God. I pray that it do that for you. God's word is powerful to transform us, to change us, to rearrange the way that we think, view the world, ourselves, and our maker. I pray that he would do that for you through these two messages. 
We will see a great fish swallow Jonah whole. We will see a great wind made to cease in a moment by God. We will see a great city, a city of great atrocity, repent and turn to God. It is probably the world's shortest sermon. We will see a plant grow overnight. And we will see Jonah throw a great and suicidal fit over the repentance of that great city and over the destruction of this plant. But in all this, we will see a great God working to make a point about himself. What is the book of Jonah about? God. But back to the fish for a moment. This book is surprising to some because of the fish incident, or at least it is surprising to them that anyone would believe it. How did Jonah live in that fish for three days? You don't believe that, do you? Uh, I mean, that was what followed after, either as a joke or serious, that's what followed after Jonah came up over this last week. Oh, Jonah and the fish, you don't believe it. Oh, I'm just joking. Or uh, you don't believe that, do you? Uh, that's kind of what you hear. So it's Jonah and the fish, and then it's how did that happen? Well, great question. Fish normally don't swallow humans whole. Humans who are swallowed by fish don't normally live. And fish who swallow humans don't normally spit them up, much less on dry land in one piece. So how can this be? Not a bad question. How could Jesus be raised from the dead? That's not normal either. The answer is God. The Bible comes to us with a supernatural worldview, a God who can do these kinds of things. And he's revealed himself in Scripture, and every word of it's true. And Jonah comes to us as a part of history. Jonah's God can do whatever he wants. That is, he is sovereign. He has the power to do whatever he wants. And that's how Jonah can emerge from the ship in one, sorry, from the fish in one piece. But as we read this story to really understand what it's saying, we are going to bump up against a much more surprising reality. The God who is sovereign, who does whatever he wants, is a God of compassion on those who insist on doing whatever they want. The God at whose command the wind, the fish, and the plants spring into action has compassion for humans who run from him, who will not do what he says even when he speaks to them directly. And the God who has the power to do good on his own justice has compassion on the unjust who deserve his just judgment. God is out to surprise us this morning. But not from the supernatural things that happen in the book that we might expect. The fish, the plant. And not, he won't surprise us from his pronouncement of judgment on a nation, although that would surprise many in our day. No, what is more surprising than a man alive after three days in a fish, or a God who judges, is a God who is slow to anger, a God who has compassion on the unjust, who has mercy on the unjust who cry out to him. Listen to God's self-description as he speaks to Moses from his sovereign position in a cloud on the mountain that is shaking. In Exodus 34, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. From a terrible mountaintop, God speaks to Moses about what he is like. He's communicating his sovereignty through where it's happening and the nature of the communication. But what he is saying is this, I am merciful, I am gracious, I am abounding in steadfast love, I am slow to anger, I forgive. What is Jonah about? Jonah is about God. And more specifically, the God, we could say, of sovereign compassion. When we say compassion, compassion like the word mercy, but the feeling side. You can feel compassion and have compassion and you can have mercy. God has compassion on those that he doesn't, to, whom for, to whom he doesn't necessarily show mercy. And as we'll see, God has compassion on unlikely characters. The mark of true Christianity is a wholesale embrace of God's justice and his mercy. Paul in Romans reminds us of what God says to Moses. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And this compassion of God's that that comes from the bottom of his heart, his compassion sent Christ all the way to the cross for our sake, and Christ went willingly. When we look to the cross, we see what God's compassion would cost him. And when we look to the cross, we see something about the kind of people that God was having compassion on, for that is what they cost. 
God's sovereign compassion may come as foolishness to some, but I pray that it will come to you this morning as good news, a good surprise even. Well, this morning's sermon will take us through Jonah 1 and 2, and it will unfold in three parts following the three scenes in these first two chapters. First, Jonah and God's word. Second, Jonah, some sailors, and a rescue. And third, Jonah, a fish, and a prayer. I promise not to completely wear you out with these, but let's dive in. Scene one, Jonah and God's word. I'll read verses one through three of chapter one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Rise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now I'm just going to give it away right here. And you noticed it. Jonah did something completely absurd. And we are supposed to shake our heads at Jonah. And we are supposed to laugh at him. And this will get easier as the book unfolds. This is a satire, and Jonah is the target of the whole thing. And so I'll hope throughout the course of these two sermons to mirror something of what the author is hoping will be going on in our heads. Namely, seeing the humor and the absurdity of and the tragedy of what Jonah is doing. Verse 1 says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This means Jonah was a prophet. This is what happened to God's prophets. He spoke to them. In the Old Testament, prophets stand between God and his people. They were given God's word in order to speak God's word to God's people. And in this case, Jonah was to speak to Nineveh. There are a number of ways that prophets related their message. Sometimes they spoke it in plain Hebrew. Sometimes they did a dramatization to illustrate a message and make a point. Jonah serves a point in a curious way that he doesn't even realize is happening. His own disobedience is a message for Israel. The book was written for Israel, and Israel is to see herself represented in her prophet Jonah, who has her attitudes and her commitments and her feelings. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah. He's one of God's prophets. Let's keep reading. What did God tell Jonah to do? Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. God is telling Jonah to pronounce judgment on a wicked city. And God does this kind of thing. Remember, he judged Sodom and Gomorrah for their evil. The next verse should make us scratch our heads a bit. God said, arise, go to Nineveh now in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, either Jonah didn't hear what God said, or he did and he's upset. And we know he's upset because he's running away from the presence of the Lord. But what for? Maybe you manage people and... uh, You don't like laying people off or firing them, even when it's a just firing. I sure hope you wouldn't like doing that. Maybe Jonah doesn't want to tell these people God's going to judge them. Maybe he's spineless, too compassionate to be a prophet. Well, it is true that Jonah doesn't want to tell people that God will judge them, but that's because he knows who God really is. He knows that implicit in all of God's warnings is the possibility that God will relent If the warned repent, if they turn from their wickedness and call out to God for mercy, it is this way throughout the prophets. It is assumed. And I should clarify at this point that this was not the normal way of things for God's people Israel, to leave town and to preach to other nations as we would preach the gospel to the nations. This was not their mission to go and do, so that Jonah here is just told to do something that he should have been, or Israel should have been doing all along. This is a special mission to make a point, and born of God's compassion. Israel was to be a light in the world through her example of a people who loved the Lord with their whole heart and knew God's blessing for it. And God sending Jonah is a reminder that through Abraham's seed, every nation will be blessed. If Israel longs for that day, then she would rejoice at this mission. Jonah would rejoice at this mission, even if it only lifts his horizon to the future when that will happen fully. Instead, Jonah's reluctance to preach highlights how different Jonah and God were, how different God's people were from God. That's what God's trying to say. 
But God has compassion on on humanity. And Israel was intended as a vehicle for the promise of the Messiah that would one day flower in blessing to all the nations and compassion on people and mercy among all the nations. But still, doesn't everyone want to know the will of God for their life? Right? God would just speak to me sometimes, you might say. We have his word, which is all he's purposed to give us. And so we work with that and go from there. But it'd be nice to have God speak with us. God just spoke to Jonah. Now Jonah knows God's personal will for his life. Yet three times the text says that Jonah is headed to Tarshish. Three times. In other words, Jonah is emphatically not going to Nineveh. He is in his mind fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Tarshish is off the map. Way to the left if you look at it. In fact, we don't know exactly where it was, but it was off the map. And Tarshish is the farthest place away where Yahweh's name is not honored or known, we learn in the book of Isaiah. He is making a daring daylight escape. So why does he, why doesn't he want to go to Nineveh? We know it's an evil place, but let's explore here a little bit. Let's learn about Nineveh. Humanly speaking, Jonah's reluctance, we could say, is understandable. Let's consider what God was actually asking Jonah to do. Nineveh was a great city, we learn in our first verses. Nineveh was great for her size, but though she was a big city, she was great because of her influence and her splendor and her majesty as a city. Famous for gardens and parks, a 50-mile aqueduct that they built to get water from the mountain. That's impressive. Numerous ornate buildings, a double wall to protect the city, a great library water dams, and all of this we've just gotten from excavations. She was the prized city in a highly developed civilization, Assyria, the most powerful nation in the ancient world at the time. No doubt, going to this great city would be intimidating. Jonah was one man, he didn't know anyone there, and no doubt they wouldn't like him for the things that God was sending him to say. Still, this may well have been considered a big gig. I mean, remember Jonah's Running? Why is he running? We'll answer that question in a moment. Nineveh was a great city, but Nineveh was also an evil city. He was told to call out against it, for their evil had come up before the Lord. What was their evil? Assyria was built by military conquest. The more ruthless, the more intimidating, the more Assyria got her way. And this was her way. There are accounts from Assyrian kings that have been found, boasting in gruesome practices toward her enemies. I destroyed, I demolished, I burned. I took their warriors prisoner and impaled them on stakes before their cities. Filleted the nobles, as many as had rebelled, and spread their skins out on piles of dead corpses. Many of the captives I burned in a fire. Many I took alive. From some I cut off their hands, others their noses, ears, and fingers. I put out the eyes of many of the soldiers." In another account, I slew 260 fighting men. I cut off their heads and made pyramids thereof. It was old English. I slew one of every two. I built a wall before the great gates of the city. I flayed the chief men of the rebels and I covered the wall with their skins. Some of them were enclosed alive in the bricks of the wall. Some of them were crucified on stakes along the wall. These are written accounts of their atrocity, and there are visual accounts of their atrocity that we've dug up. Murals of these things. Here's how the prophet Nahum describes Assyrians cruel, Assyria's cruelties. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where, her, where his cubs were, with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lioness, lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. There is no erasing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Assyria was a deeply idolatrous people. Her king was considered divine. Here's an opening line from one official document that would have been offensive to Israel. King of the universe, unrivaled king, king of all four quarters, sun god of the people, chosen of all the gods, beloved of the gods, 
destructive weapon of the great gods. I have no idea what the rest of his letter said, but you should look it up if it's available. Nineveh would at times haul off parts of Israel's population into slavery, annex her property, and no doubt rape and murder were a part of it all. Nineveh, grisly, brutal, Israel's worst enemy, the last people on the earth they would want to see do well. Captured in one word we get in our first verses here, evil. And this was Jonah's line in the sand. God tells Jonah to arise, go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, Jonah, it says, rose to flee to Tarshish. God said, go north and west by land. Jonah goes south and east by sea. But while we can understand his response given the context, we need also to remember that Jonah was a prophet. God's word was his profession. That's like the Olympic swimmer who approaches a diving board but then runs back to the shower room because he got scared. Or a gymnast on national television who takes the stage but then runs out of the room screaming at the thought of doing a flip. Or a pro basketball player who goes to receive a pass and then gets out of the way because he doesn't want to get hit. What is wrong with this guy? Humanly speaking, we can understand. But Jonah knows God and he's a prophet. Well, I think we can all relate. Are there some things you won't hear from God? You don't read those Bible passages or allow those subjects to come up in your relationships with other Christians, at church, or among your family. Your mind is made up and you've drawn your line in the sand and maybe it's been a long time and everyone in your life is close enough to know you have exactly where you want them. No one can catch you. You come to church, but you do your own thing on your own time. And in a sense, this is true of all of us. And as much as we sin and ignore God's word and harden our heart and do not repent, we are as foolish as, and silly as Jonah. We are human beings made in God's image for God's glory for a life of happy trust and obedience. That's who we are. But even as fallen human beings in Christ, we do have indwelling sin. Reflecting on Jonah's rebellion, Colin Smith writes this, Sin remains in the heart of even the most mature believers, and it is never passive. Sin shows itself in dark moods, powerful temptations, selfish ambition, callous moods, coldness of heart, and anger with God, to name a few examples. Like a renegade oil well, your flesh is always forcing some new polluting thoughts or desires to the surface of your life. My friends, as Christians, we must fight sin. It is always stupid. It is always as ridiculous as Jonah's running. We must fight to know God better, to see him for who he is, so that when we are tempted, it looks as foolish as it is. Jonah is the target of this satire, but in as much as we disobey God's word, our laughing and our head shaking is at ourselves. Praise God than for the greater prophet, Jonah. Greater prophet than Jonah, Jesus. Who obeyed perfectly where Jonah didn't and we don't. Not traveling 550 miles to preach a short sermon, but who came to us from heaven, God's very word made flesh, full of grace and truth and filled with compassion for sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. And yes, you and me. Jesus doesn't run from danger, but goes to the cross willingly and cries, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's what's in the heart of God. So God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah hits the pavement and then the water for Tarshish to get away from God as far as he can. And on that boat, he meets some sailors. And this brings us to scene two. Scene two, Jonah, some sailors, and a rescue. I'll read Chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. Each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. 
Notice the first three words there. But the Lord. Apparently, Jonah wasn't away from the presence of the Lord yet. In fact, we learn in verse 4 that that wasn't exactly possible in the first place. Jonah thought he was fleeing, thought that by fleeing the temple, the place of God's special presence among his people, that he could get away from God. And even if he knew he couldn't get away from God, that maybe that was the best he could do. If God's anywhere, he's in Jerusalem. And if he's not somewhere, well, he's not in Tarshish. But the Lord hurled a great storm, wind upon the sea. And it created a storm and waves, and the ship was about to break. In this scene, we have two kinds of people. We have the sailors, the pagan sailors, and we have Jonah, God's prophet. The sailors were deathly afraid of the storm. They are crying out to their respective gods. They would know a bad storm when they were in one. They lived on the sea. This was their job, and apparently they interpreted this one as the kind you see before you die. They were hurling cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. This is one clue of how bad it was. That would have been expensive. You want to show back up on port without your cargo? Why'd you do that? Well, we thought we were going to die. That's a last, that's an emergency measure and an expensive measure. That cargo was their livelihood, but that's what they needed to do if they wanted to live at all. Jonah, on the other hand, is down below fast asleep. He either thinks he'll be fine or he is resigned to his own fate. He is running from God, and if God catches him, he can go ahead and take him. He is not going to Nineveh. And perhaps there's still an unsettling feeling in Jonah's heart about what he's doing. We all know that. He's running from God, and he knows God, and he knows that this is God's doing, this storm. That may be going on here too. He's trying to sleep it off pacify himself. Of course, instead he should be crying out to his God like everyone else. Maybe it is his God that's causing all this trouble. So the captain barges in on his rest. What are you doing? Cry out to your God. Maybe he'll give a thought to us and we won't perish. With a building storm and no resolution, the sailors sailors gather, verses 7 and 8. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And that's called an interrogation. You can imagine Jonah on his bed, sleeping. Captain comes in, barks at him. Jonah doesn't say anything or doesn't give it up at least. Captain calls everyone around. Someone's lying here. Someone's responsible for this. One of your gods is throwing a fit. They cast lots. This was a way of they would discern the thing to do or get an answer to a question. It's superstitious, but they would cast these lots, and if it was two dark ones up, like dice, it would be the answer is no. If it's two light ones up, the answer is yes. They go around each guy. No. 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 They're all relieved. And then it comes to Jonah, and he's been watching the whole time. It's two light ones up. Calm and collected, in verse 9, Jonah answers their questions. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And now in verse 10, the sailors react. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is it that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Now that's interesting that we don't have the quote from him saying he's fleeing the Lord. You wonder if when he was boarding the ship, they said, Well, where are you going? Tarshish, I'm fleeing from my God. Uh, People do that all the time. Um, Go to a new territory. Uh, Now they're putting the pieces together. He's fleeing from the Lord. I was having a Bible study with a friend at Denny's a number of years ago, and a man sitting near us overheard. He introduced himself, and he said, "Uh, I'm not a Christian. Uh, I know that the God of the Bible is the true God, but I'm running from him. I've never forgotten it. It was as uh, sterile a moment as ever. He just stared at us in plain conversation and made that kind of a statement. Now, maybe that he he thought that he was too far gone for God's grace. I don't know that I was wise enough to ask the right question at that moment. But it may be that he just didn't like God. He knew who he was, but he didn't like him, and he was running. Well, that's Jonah here, I think. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. I'm running from him. And the sailors are rightly now exceedingly afraid, not of the storm, but of Jonah's presence on the ship. 
verse 11 and 12. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? Isn't that a great question? What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Let's hit pause for a moment. Think with me about the situation of these sailors. These guys were in the wrong place at the wrong time. You would think that being with God's man in a storm would be a good thing for you. But here they're in a storm under threat of death because of God's man. There's a lesson here for all of us that concerns our sin. And that is that all of our sin has consequences that don't only affect us, but have reached into the lives of other people, even down generations. The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness in part through the consequences of sin. And husbands, can I say, and fathers, that this is especially, especially true for us. Some of you might object that your particular indulgence isn't hurting anyone. Well, let's just say that Jonah ran into the desert and was languishing there. And the sailors were uh, sailing on a peaceful day to Tarshish under no threat of death. Does Nineveh have a preacher? Does Israel have her leader? Remember the picture of these sailors. All right, unpause. We've just heard Jonah say, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. Now verse 13 through 16. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more temptuous again against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Did you notice that they were reluctant to pitch Jonah? The storm's getting pretty bad at this point. Remember how bad it was when it first started? And then it said it's getting more and more temptuous and then more and more temptuous. There could be a number of reasons why they were reluctant. Jonah was God's prophet. If God could do this on the sea, do you really want to kill his guy? Maybe God just wants to scare him or maybe he wants to kill him by himself. Well, at this point, they're going to die. And this is their best gamble. And so they throw him over. But it's also likely that there's some compassion here. Jonah says, throw me over, it's my fault but they can't bring themselves to do it. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. They were close enough to land. They don't want to kill him. If they could row there, probably you could see it. No, they had compassion. The reason I think that's what's going on here is because it makes Jonah look bad. That's not just me hating on Jonah. The book is written for these contrasts. By throwing him in the water, became the only option, so that's what they did. And sure enough, as Jonah hit the water, the water was made calm. And notice the sailor's response with me. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done it as it pleased you. They acknowledge the sovereignty of God, his power and his prerogative to do whatever he wants. It's a good confession. And an excellent example of repentance. In other words, Lord of heaven, you decide if we live or die. You do whatever you please. Please forgive us for what we're about to do if this is wrong. Please save us from this storm. They don't presume on God's mercy as though their repentance or their feeling bad means that God is required to show them mercy. No, repentance actually entails saying to God, I have nothing to offer. I need you to help me. I need mercy. And then we read in verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The sailors were afraid of the storm, and then they were exceedingly afraid of Jonah on their boat, and now they're exceedingly afraid of the Lord. They fear the Lord exceedingly. They know that not only can he create this storm, but he is so great as to kill the storm in a moment for their sake at the sacrifice of Jonah. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And it does appear to be a real deal conversion. They're crying out to Yahweh, God's personal name. There's another name for God that could have been used in this book if it weren't a genuine conversion. Someone had to know about this. 
God could drop it down on the author of Jonah by divine revelation, but it's likely that he just, this was known. It's likely they made their way back to sea to make these sacrifices. They wouldn't have had anything on their boat to sacrifice, and they were close enough to land. Word got around, and whoever the author is, if he is Jonah, or if this was a report of Jonah's story that was authored by someone else, we don't know the author, then word got around. So I think it was public when they got back. I think this is a real conversion. It's marvelous. You should be aware that there are a number of forced applications of the book of Jonah out there, and specifically about Jonah, like the character Jonah. Here's an example of how one author reflects on Jonah's conversion, confrontation with the sailors. Jonah begins in protest by running away from God's call. His faith in God, however, is a real-life example and source of hope for believers. His honest faith, in spite of his failing trust of his calling, may serve as an encouragement to those who are called to ministry. All who are called to difficult work struggle with trust in God. While the storm rages, Jonah declares his faith boldly to the sailors. He calmly confesses his guilt and offers himself as the means of their deliverance from the storm. This example of renewal of faith and trust in God is an example for all who would welcome God's mercy in the midst of trouble, even when we are ourselves the source of trouble. I think Jonah made a good confession on the boat when the soldiers and the sailors asked him who he was. But I think this paragraph is hilarious. There's nothing to redeem in Jonah. Uh, The author doesn't mean for us to mimic him in any fashion, and the only thing worth emulating is Jonah's confidence that if he did go to Nineveh, God would relent. That's the only thing worth emulating. In fact, he actually doesn't even have enough confidence in God's word because he doesn't think that God's word could follow him to the sea and do what it did to the water. Jonah doesn't care about these guys or God's name. Jonah was sleeping, and he still hadn't prayed. There's no need to praise Jonah here. Only God and the power of his word, which sends the wind to break this ship and to break the hearts of these sailors. The real point of this section here is in the contrast between Jonah and the sailors. God threatens the ship with a deadly storm, and Jonah goes to sleep. The pagan sailors cry out to their gods, but when the captain calls on Jonah to pray to his God, he doesn't pray. Jonah hears God's voice and runs away. As soon as the pagan sailors learn his name, they're crying out to him in prayer. Jonah doesn't care if he dies since living means doing what God wants. The pagan sailors make vows to God in thankfulness for saving their lives. God sends Jonah on a mission to Gentiles, and not only does Jonah run, but when he boards the ship, he retreats from the company of Gentiles. And though Jonah was on the run from his task among the Gentiles, God brings these sailors to conversion. You realize Jonah could have stopped that storm by confessing and repenting on the spot, on the ship. He was happier dead than following God's word. Jonah's gone, the water is calm, and the sailors are on the shore worshiping God. And praise God for our greater sacrifice in Jesus. You see, when the sailors threw Jonah overboard, the the water, the wrath of God against them was gone. The sin was dealt with. Jonah was killed, as it were. Jesus, the one who can calm the storm with his word because he is Lord of creation, and who calms the greater storm, he calms the greater storm of God's wrath against sinners through the greater sacrifice of himself. And there on the cross, as it were, Jesus is tossed out to sea, But not for his sins, he was innocent, but for ours, the guilty. And now verse 17 takes us back to Jonah. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Scene three, Jonah, a fish, and a prayer. I'll read all of chapter two. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of a fish, saying, I cried out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me, and then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall shall again look upon your holy temple." 
The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pray regard, pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up upon the dry land. It's interesting that he prays this from the belly of a fish. We wouldn't normally think it of much relief to be inside a fish. I don't think it of as much relief to have a fish inside of me. But Jonah knew it was God's saving provision. Perhaps he also knew that God would sustain his life. He entered the water a dead man, that he would leave the fish alive. You'll notice he confesses, and he knows that God is with him, and his prayer is heard in the temple. So deep down, he knows that he isn't away from God, even in the bottom of the ocean. Jonah began his prayer in verse 2 by recalling his silent cry to God in the water for help. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Then in verse 3 through 6, Jonah recalls the experience of drowning and sinking in the water. Follow this with me. In verse 3, he's on the surface of the water. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. Then in verse 5, he's underwater and sinking. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. And in verse 6, Jonah is truly drowning. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. The sailors threw him in the water. But in verse 3, he acknowledges the sovereignty of God which was behind it. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And in verse 4, he says, I am driven away from your sight. In a way, this is a picture of what sin does to us, isn't it? In this case, Jonah was at the bottom of the water, a direct direct result of his decision to run from God, tangled up in the weeds and the roots, at the roots of the mountains. Well, have you ever found yourself there before, figuratively? In a tangled, suffocating mess of your own making, with nowhere to go, and every decision is somewhere bad? That there is one option that isn't? One option that won't make things worse? Verse 6 and 7, Jonah called out to God, and God had a fish right there waiting for him to do so. There is hope. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. And then in verses 8 and 9, Jonah confesses the exclusive saving love of this one true and living God. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In so many ways, this is a great prayer, right? Jonah's finally praying. He's talking to God. He cried out to God. He remembered the Lord. How many times is Israel commanded in the Old Testament to remember the Lord? Jonah confessed the Lord as the one true God. He confesses that God is sovereign in salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And his rescue through the fish is unearned. But there is something fishy about this prayer. Jonah is absolutely right. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. He probably has the sailors in mind. And yes, the sailors cried out to their nothing gods. But didn't they also cry out to Jonah's Lord at the first opportunity, while Jonah only addressed God when he hit the bottom of the sea, and only now, probably after three days in the fish? Jonah acknowledges what was his hopeless plight as he sank in the sea, but he didn't say a word about what got him there. May I suggest that maybe his running from God had something to do with his distress and his being locked at the bottom of the sea? And since God originally sent him to preach to Nineveh, it seems strange to me that there's no mention here of God's 
love for others, just for him, his compassion on him, neither for the Ninevites nor for the sailors that whose lives he just endangered. Interesting, he says, he makes sacrifices and vows. Well, that's just what the Ninevites did. Sorry, excuse me, the sailors did when they hit land. Now, this interpretation of Jonah's prayer might be uncharitable and suspect, but for the rest of the story. This sermon is based on chapters 1 and 2, but the prayer gets a whole chapter out of a four-chapter book. It gets a fourth of the whole book. It's there for a reason, and if it's there to prove the point, to demonstrate the miraculous work of transformation done in the heart of Jonah and a good example of repentance, then we should expect to see a new man, at least kind of. But here's chapter 3 and 4 in a nutshell. Jonah is called again, and Jonah goes to Nineveh. Nineveh repents, much like the sailors repented in chapter 1. Jonah prays again, but this time when he prays, he is viscerally angry at God for relenting of judgment on Nineveh. And then the book ends with God giving Jonah an object lesson to expose his hypocrisy and lack of compassion, and that's the end of the book. Chapter 2 is not here. This prayer, this extensive prayer is not here. To, sh- to give us a model for a prayer of repentance. You see, Jonah remembered the words in Psalm 31, 6 through 7. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. But he's forgotten the words of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And he's forgotten Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth. Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. That's not in his heart. As we've said, it's not every Israelite's job to be leaving town and preaching the gospel to the nations as we're commanded to do. No, God gave Jonah a specific command. But a command that reflects his general love for the world, his compassion on all sinners and the multinational horizon of his saving plan. And God also gave Jonah the specific command in order to show, via the representative of Jonah, to show Israel her self-righteousness. And how much different she really is from her God. Israel is out of touch with God, blind. And that's God's point. Even in this prayer in Jonah 2, it's a hypocritical prayer in the context of the book. But whatever mixture was going on in Jonah's heart, God was compassionate toward Jonah. He spoke to the fish, and the fish vomited Jonah up on dry land. No doubt, the sailors thought he was dead. They pitched him into the sea, and Jonah disappeared under the water and didn't come back up. He was fleeing from the Lord, he told him. God stopped the water when he hit the water. He's dead. But that Jonah is now on dry land meant that God had chosen to deliver him from death. From that point on, Jonah would preach as one delivered from death. And did you know that Jesus actually draws on this story of Jonah's deliverance as a picture of his own future deliverance from death and victory over death? Matthew 12, 38 and following. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights at the heart of the earth. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And praise God for Jesus' greater resurrection. Jonah will, with Jonah on the land, our scene three comes to a close. The story of Jonah is a story about a great God. The story of Jonah teaches us that God is great because he is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. He has all places and he has all power. 
He's in the he's on the sea. He's in the cabin of that ship. He appointed the fish to eat Jonah, and he told the fish to throw Jonah up on the land. God is not chasing Jonah. Jonah is running into God everywhere he goes. The story of Jonah teaches us that God's greatness shines brightly in the exercise of his sovereignty in judgment on the wicked. He did it in Noah's day. He did it to Sodom and Gomorrah. He will do it to Nineveh if they do not turn, though he has compassion on them. And likewise, he will judge every one of us who does not cry out to him for salvation through Jesus Christ. But the story of Jonah also teaches us that God's greatness shines most brightly in the exercise of his sovereignty in his saving compassion toward the wicked. This includes the murderer when he or she repents and cries out to God for mercy, the drunk driver who kills a family, it includes these sailors, and even you and even me. After Jesus' ascension, the Apostle Paul preached Christ this way in Acts 2. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, and God raised him up, loosing the pains of death. God planned for Jesus' crucifixion and raised him up. He is behind salvation. And then in his first letter, Peter told us why. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the unrighteous, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And all of us here, the unrighteous. Jonah was speaking about his own experience of deliverance in the fish, but he spoke better than he knew. It's true. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your powerful word a word which Jonah knew could turn the hearts of the wicked Ninevites, a word which stirred up the water and almost broke a ship and would have if you would have wanted it to, and a word that broke the hearts and wills of these sailors so that even after they were delivered, they were worshiping you and sacrificing to you and paying vows. We presume your children in faith. And Father, we pray that you would break us in that way. For those of us who have not come to you and repented and accepted forgiveness, that they would do that. You have a special name for your enemies who repent and cry out to you, and that is children. Pray that some would be made children of God today. And for those of us who know you and who are found in Christ and wrestle with indwelling sin, that we would see our sins And see the next temptation for what it is. Foolishness. Absurdity. And that we would shake our head and laugh at the thought of doing that. Or thinking that. Or feeling that. Father, do this great work in us. Salvation belongs to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.